spiritual practice is wonderful for a lot of reasons. It can help us cultivate uh, states of ease in life that are unconditionally available, uh, reduce stress, and also, uh, amongst other uh, attributes, spiritual practice allows us occasionally to have what could be called epiphanies or insights into ourselves. We can learn all kinds of, become aware of all kinds of tendencies, perhaps self-destructive behaviors. We might become aware of things that we care about that really don't matter at all. Sometimes life will provide those insights. After, for example, a, a relationship breakup or a loss, we might become aware of how impermanent life is, and then we might become aware of why the fuck do I give a shit about so much of the shit that I give a fuck about. (laughs) 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 And yet, and yet, the question is, is that why, after we have these insights, do we still get pulled back in? Why do we still give a fuck about the shit that we know doesn't matter? Why do we get activated worrying about... For instance, uh, I remember many, 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 many years ago, 20 years ago, which is many to me, um, uh, I was talking with a spiritual teacher and they said, you know, if if you and other people didn't worry about what other people thought, so much of your suffering would immediately vanish from your life. And I realized this was inherently true, and yet it took years and years and years and years and years and years to, to weed out that, that habitual worrying part of my brain that would check on other people and, and see... Uh, you know, how they were regarding me, trying to figure out what they thought about me. It took a long time to really, uh, to make significant inroads in that. Even though I knew, as clear as day, that worrying, you know, that trying to please people or trying to be liked universally or whatever is a complete source of suffering and a waste of time. Um, So many of my heroes are people that went against the grain, went against the stream, and brought something wonderful to the world, weren't particularly cherished in their time. And yet, in our own lives, we can just see how much suffering we create through some practices, worrying about, worrying, just (laughs) worrying, period, worrying about unknowables, catastrophizing, uh, going into the worst possible outcome for any event, 
and yet we can find ourselves again and again and again pulled back in. And then there are, of course, the uh, interpersonal behaviors where we know that certain people are toxic for us, yet we go back again and again, or we, uh, when we're around certain people, we act in certain ways that later on cause, what the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> so why? Why? Uh, the Buddha had many insights. One of his great insights, and we're going to be talking about this insight along with that question, is that personality is not this array of traits that are always available to us. We like to think that we have a static personality. Uh, sometimes we even pathologize ourselves. Well, I'm a very anxious person. I'm smart. Don't, don't get me wrong, I'm very smart, but I'm, I'm neurotic. <laughs> I'm creative, but I'm anxious. Uh, so we, uh, we tend to, like, we want to find and we carry around a story of who we are. And we tend to believe that those traits are always there. And then we become confused when we learn something about ourselves and yet it becomes difficult to implement the insight into our actual day-to-day -day behaviors. Now, why is this? I'm going to talk first about some psychological insights and then the Buddha's insights, and they're very, very similar. Um, what neuroscientists are finding out and clinical psychologists is that the mind is very, very setting-dependent. You might find that, for instance, you've forgotten where you put your keys one day and you're walking around the house and then you move into a different room and suddenly a memory might come up. You might find that in certain settings you're, you have a sense of humor, other settings you don't. Certain settings you might feel relaxed, other settings you don't. What these are called is we, in fact, don't have global personalities, global identities. We actually have what are called modes. And those modes are very, very dependent upon where we are, who we're with, what the environment is. There are wonderful studies that if people have are given... Uh, large amounts of information in a specific <coughs> setting, put them in another setting, and up to 50-60% of the information will no longer be available to them. Bring them back to the setting where you gave them the information, and they'll be able to recite 80-90%, to simply because the mind has files information under the location and the setting where that information was provided. Not only that, but according to the wonderful psychologist Eugene Gedlin, we have specific, what he calls, um, implicit backgrounds or tacit responses that arise in each interpersonal 
type setting of our lives. There are certain people around with which we become tense. And when we become physically tense, the body prohibits certain kinds of emotions and, and conveys other kinds of emotions. Other settings where you feel relaxed, your body will have a completely different posture and your mind will provide you with an entirely different set of inclinations. This is why, for example, people who go very often to the country, get away from it all, have a little peace, find themselves very relaxed, and then they go back to the city, and suddenly they're like, where did my peace and calm go? This is why insights that happen in one setting can be completely lost to us in other settings. The key, one of the key insights of Gendlin is that the roots underlying, uh, as he says, uh, state, is that in each setting of our lives, we have actually certain physical body states. When you're with your parents or your family, you actually go into a family body. Your body might be, in my case, it's like... <laughs> 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 All right. You know, and then and, uh, we might, in other settings with our friends, we might become, yo, how's it going? And then at work we might become, okay, I'm keeping track of it. I'm keeping track of it. I'm keeping track of it. Yes, don't worry, I'm on it. So we have a body. And then from that body, there arises these tacit backgrounds, which are certain kinds of thoughts and behaviors that we have seen over time are appropriate for those interpersonal settings. So certain settings, if your body is relaxed, according to Barbara Fredrickson, the chances are very high that positive emotions will rise, and when positive emotions arise, your, your mind is open to a lot more responses in a given situation. If somebody triggers you, you've had a difficult uh, experience with them in the past, or it's a setting where you feel threatened or unsafe, your body will get tense, your breath will start becoming shallow, and then the mind will go into one of its survival modes, and the emotions that it provides will be, in essence, survival impulses. Survival impulses and survival emotions have a couple of things in common. The most significant are A, they derive largely from your midbrain, and B, survival impulses are which derive from negative emotions, tends to push you towards one reaction and one reaction only. Whereas positive emotions, such as a state of happiness or contentment, allow for you to pick from a wide variety of responses. If you feel unsafe in an environment, you feel a sense of anxiety. Your anxiety is basically pushing you into a state 
where you want to get out. You want the situation to end. And all of your thoughts will derive from that underlying agenda. If you find yourself angry or frustrated with someone, you will find that every thought that arises from that body and that emotional soil will be derived at being critical of them. So, <coughs> settings which create a feeling of insecurity or a sense of threat or a lack of safety uh, or a lack of uh, ease will create certain emotions and those emotions will push you towards specific reactions that are very limited. Some psychologists argue that when we are in threatening situations we don't really have free will. Where there is no choice, they argue, there's no free will. It's only when we have a choice that when we can choose between different responses that we have any free will in our lives. And so, there is some possible correlation that when we are frightened, depressed, anxious, activated in a negative way, the amount of free will we have is diminished. Whereas when we are and can restore some kind of neutral or contented state, we are increasing the degree of free will we can exercise in our choices. <coughs> now why do we have specific reactions to specific settings? <clears throat> Especially with certain people. Anybody have a guess? No guess. Oh. Fear? Fear is what arises, but why do you think certain people elicit fear? Because of a specific situation that might have happened. Right. And, <clears throat> but suppose, suppose with that person, you can't recall there ever being a bad experience with that person. Why do you think fear might still arise? Or... Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> the root of our modes lies in what's called family systems. We develop an array of coping strategies that help us survive our parents and our siblings and our school teachers and those awful little kids that we had to socialize with to survive grade school. Children are not born with coherent personalities. What they are born with is a desire to survive. And they develop sets of coping strategies to help them survive mom, help them to survive dad, help them to survive bro or sis or uncle or aunt or other kids or what have you. And so these sets of coping strategies, one for each dominant personality, then very often get imported into our adult life as what the psychologist Bowlby calls uh, working models that we then place onto somebody else. So for instance, 
I'll use myself as an example because I do that for you. I lay myself bare. So I grew up with a dominating, drunk dad, very unpredictable, macho guy. I was never macho enough for him. Uh, And uh, so whenever I'm with really over-the-top macho guys that are kind of uh, um, really demonstrative, I almost immediately find myself going back into the same coping strategies I used to survive my early relationship with my father. It triggers the same exact emotions, the same hypervigilance, the same lack of uh, belief or trust, the same kind of, you know, uh, expecting disappointment. I go into the exact same body, the same breath, the whole implicit background arises. It's probably why me and Noah are always butting heads. (laughs) So, uh, and my mother was on the other hand a a very consistent, caring uh, caretaker who was very available. So, in my relationship with women, I'm much less on guard, I'm much less, uh, much less, less inner narrative, much less self-consciousness, a much greater sense of empathy that's natural with men. I've, I've worked to cultivate it. With women it just comes spontaneously, much more content, much more wider array of responses available. I've had to learn with men to uh, undo, not all men, but uh, certain kinds of guys. I've had to learn how to, over a time, uh, create a, a state that allows me to be relaxed, uh, much more emotionally neutral, so that I can respond to them, not respond to my father when somebody who's not my father is talking to me but eliciting the same responses. I have to get out of that body state that I was with with my dad. You know, like that. So, the Buddha had his own theory that was remarkably similar to this. The Buddha had a word called Chetasika, and he said that we don't have global personalities, but we do have specific mind states that arise in specific situations. And he even had an explanation of how these states arise. He said, and this is so similar to contemporary neurobiology and psychology, the Buddha said that um, due to early experience, we have certain things that trigger us, create nama rupa, but then in certain situations, we make contact And from contact, we go into a body state, which he calls Vedana. We have a positive or negative response. And if it's Dukkha Vedana, if we're negative, then fear and anxiety and negative emotions arise. And from those negative emotions, negative thoughts, and then we attain a specific state, Bhava or Chetasika, personality mode. He said, in essence, the exact same thing. We 
have underlying early experiences which create a kind of inclination. But most of our responses, he said, are setting dependent based on contact, which puts us into certain body states and then puts from those body states provides certain kinds of emotions. If the emotions are what he calls dukkha-vedana, and negative emotions, we will have largely single negative responses. And the Buddha said, if we have positive uh, vedana, a good relaxed state, he said, indeed, our response vocabulary will increase. We'll have more choices. So, This is, again, why uh, certain insights that you have in certain settings might be completely useless in other settings. If you have an insight into yourself in a setting with some friends where you go, oh yeah, why do I care about this? And then you go into an another, another environment, work, say, where you're triggered, you don't feel safe, you don't feel relaxed, you go into a body state that's tense, your emotions start becoming more survivally influenced, then you will find you have more and more single driven reactive tendencies. Even though in a setting where you feel calm and with your friends you realize that so much of the shit you give about while you're around your family or work or in dating situations. Why do I in dating situations always try to be you know talk about how successful I am. I don't get it. Because in similar situations with the parent that reminds you of the person you're dating, you felt you needed to prove yourself. You weren't accepted for who you are. You constantly needed to win their affection. That's why we do it today. So, you say, okay, Josh, this is very interesting. And suddenly you're talking in a New York strange accent. I don't know why you're doing that. Okay, Josh, this is all very interesting, but how can I use these insights in a way that will help me in my day-to-day -day life? And I say, that's a very good question. The first is that when you begin to know that there are certain behaviors, uh, states of being, Times when you feel anxious, depressed, worried, when you feel activated, the first thing is to not go into the tendency to pathologize yourself and announce, I'm an anxious person, I'm a depressed person, I'm a this or I'm a that. That tendency to globalize, pathologize, all it does is create a feeling of hopelessness and a feeling of being trapped. It doesn't liberate you. It simply creates a state of feeling there's no way out. I can't tell you how many people I meet with, working with people one-on-one, -on -one, where they'll come and they'll say, I'm this or I'm that. And then quickly, in our conversation, they won't exhibit any of the traits that they say they are. Because they feel relaxed, unjudged, safe. So clearly, those traits that they've globalized and pathologized themselves with are simply traits that arise in situations where they feel unsafe and activated. They're not global traits. They're traits that are activated in certain sub-settings of life. 
Are you getting this? Does this make sense? Okay. So, don't globally pathologize yourself. If you have an inclination or a, or a behavior or something that feels that you're struggling with, begin to instead note which settings, which people do these traits arise in. Where, when do I start having these feelings? Start matching the state with the setting. The Buddha suggested something called sati sampujana, which simply means, he said, when we're activated, simply become aware of the body and note the body language, the body posture, the way you're breathing, everything about your body. How is it? How are you sitting? How are you reacting? What's going on? When you begin to notice this, you can then use the learning to, in situations where you are being needlessly reactive, you're being triggered because something reminds you of an early or situation, if you're sure that you're safe and that you're just being triggered, you can then change the body, change the breath, change the tacit state you're in so that you can actually then change the emotions, change the thoughts, and change the behaviors. It starts from the body. So, for example, um, Again, this is not for a situation where you're actually in danger. If you're in danger, then go into uh, That's totally appropriate. But suppose, for example, you've been through uh, a very difficult breakup. You dated, for some reason, a narcissist. What were you thinking? And yet there you were dating a narcissist who only wanted you around because they need constant audience and attention, but when it, when it ever came to expressing yourself or being seen, they completely lost interest in you and wanted you to basically just be quiet so that they could resume talking. Maybe that's never happened to you. But you've been through this traumatic experience and then, uh, or you've been in a relationship with somebody who's emotionally unavailable and you've been suddenly abandoned and you feel that sense of abandonment fear arise and you're meeting somebody completely new and there's they've not given you any red flags yet that they might be abandoning they might be the kind of person that would suddenly discard you for no reason yet you find yourself in anxious you find yourself already trying to please them at all costs or breaking your boundaries and being willing to trade sex for intimacy too quickly. Again, I'm just talking theoretically. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you get the idea. Uh, you find yourself needlessly triggered because of a previous experience, and now you're in that state that's creating reactivity. The first thing is rather than trying to tell yourself to stop, it won't work. But if you change the body you actually can give yourself a chance because emotions are cued not by first the setting, but if the setting is being misread, your reactive states and your body states can be overridden. You can override the 
reactive state that you're in. You start with the body. Now, there's a social psychologist by the name of Amy Cuddy. She's a Harvard uh, social psychologist, and she did some fascinating studies. She found groups of people and she isolated the ones that were very confident and could speak in groups and felt confident to speak in classes. She looked at the way they sat and held their body, and then she found the ones that were very timid, shy, didn't feel, even though they had something to offer, that they had uh, the emotional confidence to talk in group settings. And she noticed the way they sat. And she had Group A, the confident people, sit in the same body position as Group B. And she had Group B sit like Group A. And within a very few weeks, their entire behaviors and personalities in the classes completely switched. She did a whole bunch of of studies and she concluded that it derives from the animal kingdom that when being when creatures are big and expansive they are confident and they exhibit confident behaviors and think in confident tropes when people on the other hand go into the startle reflex keep their hands and arms close to the body crossed in front of them they actually are exhibiting an evolutionary trait of holy shit I'm about to be eaten alive. (laughs) And the simple behavioral switch of she had the people who were previously incapable of sharing, she instructed them simply to open their chest and put their arms folded behind their head, and she found that very quickly they were capable of confidently expressing themselves in the class. It didn't come from rehearsing, which was a strategy that people try. You ever try to, you're going into a a conflict and you find yourself negotiating or rehearsing what you're going to say. I'm going to say this, and that's going to catch them off guard, but maybe they'll say that. And then I'm going to say, well, uh, okay, I'll say this, but then they might say that. But then I'll say, you son of a bitch, you don't know what the fuck you're thinking. And then you're in the actual situation, you're like, you would be far better off not bothering to rehearse and simply practicing sitting and breathing in a confident, relaxed way. Literally. If you can get into a body state, a breathing state, a state of being that is relaxed and confident, you will find that the emotional palate and the inclinations that the brain serves up will follow suit. As Gendlin says, we don't choose our words and actions from an endless list. We choose from what is served up to us. And what is served up to us is set by the physical expression we take in certain situations. This is why the Buddha, in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, said, in every situation in life, know the body first. Know the breath. Know the body. See what's going on. Become aware. 
relax, open, breathe. The more you can do that, the more you can begin then to do the other tools of you can titrate, bring to mind somebody that you know, instills a sense of peace. You can re- re- bring to mind a place you feel safe. And all together, the relaxed body, the long out-breath, the big open chest, the thoughts that are you know, constructive, all of that will create a foundation which will change the way you behave when you're triggered. I thank you for listening.